You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a British Academy Global Professor and an Associate Professor of Human Trafficking and Modern Slavery at Nottingham University and an Adjunct Lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. As an author, researcher, and activist on modern slavery, he has authored three books and has won the Frederick Douglass Book Prize. His first book was adapted into a Hollywood film called Trafficked, and a feature film inspired by his latest book, Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives, is currently in production. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Siddharth Kara. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your journey in coming to write this book. Well, yes, I, um, uh, I'm so grateful to be here to talk about this subject matter. Um, I have been traveling the world for around 22 years now, conducting field research on uh, various facets of modern day slavery and child labor, um, this across dozens of countries um, and numerous sectors at the bottom of the global economy. Um, and in the course of those journeys, I started hearing about um, issues relating to cobalt um, probably around 2015, 2016, some colleagues uh, um, in the field said, Siddharth, you know, the the cobalt mining conditions in the Congo are, are uh, pretty um, pretty bad. You, you know, maybe that's something you should go look into. And for me, cobalt was a color. I had no idea what it was really um, uh, and uh, started to uh, look into this a little bit and realize that, um, you know, it's an immensely valuable metal used in almost every lithium ion rechargeable battery made in the world. Um, and most of it uh, is mined in the Congo. So I planned my first trip and took that trip in 2018. Um, and what I saw just overwhelmed me in its uh, severity of, of violence and degradation. Uh, and that inspired numerous more research trips to keep digging deeper and deeper, culminating in my book that's come out recently, Cobalt Red. Yeah, so before I get into, get into any of the more specific questions, I, I wanted to sort of give you an open opportunity to walk us through the brutal re realities behind what cobalt mining looks like in the Congo. So, you know, if if one of our audience was to say, walk into the one of these mines in the Congo, what, what might they see? And can you tell us a little bit about how it came to be such a dire situation? Yeah, sure. So for your listeners, the first thing to understand is, you know, people like us, you and I, and the people listening to this conversation cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt. So that makes it extraordinarily precious and valuable to our daily lives because it's in our smartphones and our tablets, our laptops, and of course, um, uh, any number of other electronic devices uh, and crucially also electric vehicles. But we can't function without it. So we need it. Um, around three-fourths of the world's supply of cobalt is mined in the Congo, a small patch of the southeastern Congo. Uh, and if you were to go there, as I did, and start walking around, what you would see uh, is it would be as if you had been transported back a few centuries to 
colonial times, a time when the people uh, of Africa were treated with utter disdain and disregard for their humanity. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of people right now, as we're talking, some of the poorest people in the world, uh, scrounging cobalt out of the ground with pickaxes, shovels, stretches of rebar, or their bare hands. This includes tens of thousands of children, um, uh, filling it up in tattered little raffia sacks that they sell to traders for the income of a dollar or two a day. Uh, uh, and then those traders sell it to uh, formal industrial mining companies. And that's how it enters into the formal supply chain. But there's a hellscape of humanity there, hundreds of thousands of people, including uh, thousands of women with babies strapped to their back um, as they hack and scrunch for cobalt, which is toxic to touch, toxic to breathe. So the children, the women, the boys, men, and the babies are all uh, exposed to this toxic substance every day. And their environment has been completely obliterated. Millions of trees have been clear-cut to make room for giant open-pit industrial mines. Uh, mining companies dump toxic uh, substances into the earth, the air, the water. The air is just a gritty haze that burns your eyes and throat. Uh, it's an absolute destruction of a population of people and their environment in this mad scramble to feed cobalt up the chain into our devices and electric cars. Yeah. So how, how did we get to this position? You know, I, I, I would imagine that with, with lithium ion batteries, you know, they're, they're only a couple of decades old. Um, so with or, or that, and as they increase in prominence, I would imagine that as, as the demand for cobalt increases, you have more and more scrutiny by human rights organizations, by NGOs, by the companies themselves who who tend to promote this idea of doing so much good, um, you know, and and being socially environmentally responsible. You think that as as this went on, that there would be more and more attention on on cobalt mining, and the situation would get better and better over time, like we've seen in you know so many atrocious labor conditions, you know, all, all around the world. Um, how come that doesn't seem to be the case here? Well, things can't get better so long as the truth is shrouded, shrouded and obscured in uh, uh, fictions told at the top of the chain about what's happening on the ground and marketing proclamations that supply chains are clean and, and, and monitored and audited and and the dignity and human rights of every person down to the mines is respected and that mining is done in a sustainable level. You see, this is all um, this fictional narrative that's been put out by these big tech and EV companies at the top of the chain about what's happening in the Congo. And of course, um, we believe it. Why wouldn't we? Uh, because these are good companies doing good, uh, uh, revolutioning, revolutionizing our lives uh, and trying to do good for the planet in the case of electric vehicle companies. Um, but the truth is down there. It has been obscured. It is now emerging through the voices of the Congolese people. My book, Cobalt Red, is the first book on this subject that brings that ground truth out to the world that has no idea um, what's been happening. And that's that's the sequence that is often the case with human rights um, uh, atrocities, that it's shrouded for a period of time until truth seekers um, uh, uncover the horror, um, document the truth on the ground, and then bring that to the world. Uh, and then hopefully people of conscience mobilize and try to affect change. And so that's my hope for the next phase. But the last 
10, 11, 12 years since the scramble started, the scramble for cobalt. It's just been uh, a, a complete catastrophe for the people and environment of the Congo. Okay. Um, so you, you, you mentioned that uh, about 75% of the world's cobalt comes from, comes from the Congo. What, what about the other 25% or so? Is the situation just as dire? Is there a possibility there to ramp up production? You know, what, what does the, the situation for cobalt look like outside of the Congo? So um, there's more cobalt in the Congo than the rest of the world combined. So that's why the Congo is responsible for such a disproportionate share of of global production. And that share is only going to increase as the years go by because there's such insatiable demand, particularly with the adoption of electric vehicles. So if you look at like a pie chart of global production for last year, it's almost three-fourths Congo. And then there's a whole bunch of other countries that are sort of 2%, 3%, 2%, Australia, Canada, Morocco, Russia, uh, you know, these other countries. Um, but there's not enough other cobalt in all of those countries combined to remotely uh, um, meet future demand projections um, driven primarily by um, uh, electric vehicle adoption. So it's it's all about Congo uh, cobalt. Uh, and that's why it's so urgent to remedy these conditions on the ground, because this scramble is only going to escalate. And uh, as a result, if attention is not paid to what's happening in the Congo, the conditions will only worsen. Yeah, it seems very surprising to me that this has sort of stayed a, a, a hidden situation because, I, I mean, I can remember a couple of years back, uh, there, was, there was a huge outrage. Everyone from the media, every news outlet was talking about how there was, you know, child labor being used to, to make clothes in China and Bangladesh. And there was this this massive public backlash against it. Um, and, and companies were sort of forced to, to change and, and to... You know, there were countless exposés and this kind of thing. And you'd think that if if the bottom of the supply chain of every iPhone and every every Tesla and every basically every major electronics device was this, you know, world shattering uh, human rights catastrophe, you'd think someone would have figured it out and, and exposed it or the public would have found out by now. It, it just seems very unusual. Well, you know, it is and it isn't. Um, it always takes a catastrophe. Um, uh, for people uh, to uncover uh, 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 some sort of human rights atrocity, some event, some catalyst. You know, with with um, the apparel sector in Bangladesh, it was the Rana Plaza disaster. And yet, if you if you were to walk around a lot of the um, sort of the informal economy, uh, informal sector of, of uh, fast fashion in parts of South Asia, despite all that outcry, despite that uh, flash of light, on the conditions, not much has actually changed. What 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 happens is companies say they're going to do things, and they may even do it for a little while. But eventually, as attention migrates to other issues, as it inevitably does, um, there's a reversion back to the way things were, or in large part, a reversion back to the way things were. So um, there's been no real catalyst um, uh, that's put this front and center in front of the world's attention. You're absolutely right. Some NGOs have been on the ground um, going back five or six years, highlighting child labor problems. Um, There's been journalists who have gone and seen a little piece of this uh, catastrophe and and brought that out and written pieces. But what happens is the companies promulgate the ongoing fiction. Oh, okay. Well, uh, so there's some problems there, but we're working on it. 
uh, or it's not in my supply chain, it's in someone else's supply chain, and the things just carry on with business as usual. Um, the issue has not attained the level of attention and scale in the global consciousness required for there to be a genuine effort to remedy and address uh, the horrors taking place. And, and that's what I hope Cobalt Red can at least start to achieve, if not achieve in full, that by bringing the ground truth, the voices of the Congolese people out to the world writ large, um, persistently, that will uh, inspire or catalyze more genuine efforts um, because the fictions that are told by the big tech and EV companies are, are disabused as, as exactly that, one at a time, as the reader goes on the journey through the mining provinces. Um, uh, and the truth is revealed uh, that runs completely contrary to what people have been told about what's happening in the Congo this last decade. Okay. Um, and yeah, so you you think that there, there would be, you know, now after, say, your um you know your your expose of this situation has has gained so much attention um you know i've seen countless articles come out about it i i've heard so many of my friends talk about this in, in your book as well um you you'd think that there would be a, a major outcry after this right um that you'd, you'd see amnesty international or you'd see the un or those kinds of people what what sort of do you think is the ideal you know that by by sort of publicizing this to the world, if you can garner more media attention, uh, you know, if we can get the the spotlight on companies, um, what do you think they have the potential to change anything? Uh, you know, if, if one company says, we're, we're not going to buy cobalt from these mines anymore, they, they have nowhere else to get it. All the cobalt in the supply chain, you know, basically the vast majority of it is coming through these these sources um and, and so what what power if any does does a company or or you know even a consumer have to do anything about this uh, well individual consumers of course can't fix what's happening on the ground in the congo it's up to the companies at the top of the chain um now my book's been out for a few weeks and it is uh thankfully resonating and getting attention um uh and being read widely and that means the voices of the people of the congo are being heard widely so uh, I'm, I have every, confident that, every confidence that there will be uh, a community of conscience that comes together and takes on this cause and presses it forward until change is achieved, because that's, that's uh, how human rights change uh, is always um, achieved. When a horror is brought out to the world's attention, um, it might start with just a small group of people, but a, a, a group of people nonetheless with conscience who declared this can't be not this, this is not acceptable, not in my time, not on my watch. Um, the first movement to abolish slavery began exactly in that way. Um, uh, when 12 people got together at a printing shop in the year 1787 at a time when slavery was the way of way of the world for centuries, they made the declaration. This is not an acceptable facet of human civilization, and we won't stop until slavery is abolished. And it took them decades, but they won. Um, and something like that will happen today. I, I have no doubt. Now, it's it will be up to the companies at the top of the chain. That's where demand for cobalt begins, and that's where the solutions need to begin. You see, they're not even bothering to go step on the ground to see where their cobalt is coming from. So how can they possibly know the truth, let alone address the conditions? That's the first step, accepting responsibility for their supply chain, Expe accepting the truth 
of what their demand for cobalt has, has created in the Congo and then getting on the ground to address those injustices as they all claim they're already doing. They all claim that their supply chains are untainted by child labor and forced labor, that mining companies in their supply chain are audited and operate sustainably. And of course, in as much as cobalt in Congo is concerned, none of that is true. Okay. Um, so I, I did want to also approach this this issue from sort of a classic economics perspective and, and make sort of a devil's advocate argument, um, just looking at sort of the economic position of the Congo. So the the, the DRC has about 100 million people in it, um, and that population skews wildly young. Um, you know, the, the DRC has one of the highest fertility rates in the world, uh, over six, uh, six children per women on average. Um, and, and so when you take that information into account, what you see is there's a massive, like tens of millions of very poor working age people. Um, and so what that leads to uh, is is sort of, you know, a, a disproportionately high supply of labor. Um, so, you know, the, the way we would typically look at this problem from uh, uh, an economics perspective would assume that the people working in these mines are getting paid at the market rate of their labor, because otherwise competing cobalt mines you know, for, would bid up the price of these workers until you hit an equilibrium. You know, that's what happens in every other labor market. Um, so in, in this situation, because of the disproportionate uh, supply, disproportionately high supply, as, as opposed to the demand, um, it, it means that the assuming the workers are free to go from mine to mine or job to job, um, they, they we can't actually make the claim that they're being exploited, so to say. Um, you know, if, if you go to the supermarket and there's there's one apple, it's going to be very highly priced. And if there's 10 million apples, they're going to sell for pennies. Um, so, so I mean, the, the other side of that is if you take away these jobs or if you say, no, th these workers have to be paid so much more, uh, it, it, it don't, don't we then run into a danger where companies say, you know, screw it, we're just going to use machines. Uh, and all these workers don't have any better alternative either. Um, you know, they're only doing this, we would assume, because this is the, the best option that they have. Um, so I'm not saying this is my perspective. This would just sort of be the the devil's advocate perspective, uh, looking at it like an like an economics issue. Well, it it is the advocacy of the devil making that argument um, because these theories, economic theories, um, they may make sense rationally, uh, but when you actually get on the ground in the real world, they often just completely fall apart and. Um, the reason I say that is when you go into a place like the Congo that is so grindingly poor and so disadvantaged and filled with violence and disease and suffering and torment, um, there's no such thing as um, the application of economic theory anymore. It's a scramble to survive from one day to the next. So you've got a lot of people. Um, sure. But if there is no alternative, no bargaining power, and human life is treated as completely expendable, then there's no such thing as, well, let me go to this other mining company that might pay me more. What you have in fact is a surplus of desperate, poor, vulnerable, starving people who will accept any uh, three pennies you throw at them because that might be the difference between eating that day or not. So it actually goes the other way around this surplus of immensely poor, starving, desperate, vulnerable people who have no alternative cannot go around and wage shop from mining company to mining company. In fact, they've all been displaced in the mining provinces. Hundreds of thousands of people have had their villages bulldozed and destroyed to make place for big mines. So now they're dispossessed, 
have no place to live, have no alternate vocation, no alternative whatsoever, other than to accept the following proposition. If you dig for cobalt, risking life and limb and toxic exposure, at the end of a day of grueling, miserable labor, you'll get a dollar and then you can eat. And that's the end of it. So there's really no theory that one can apply. There's a ground reality that has to be understood. Um, and when there's no alternative and there's such a contempt for the value of human life and the, uh, the choice for people there is uh, accept this misery for a dollar or don't eat, uh, there's really no choice for them at all. Okay, uh, is is there a, a risk of of automation then? If we if we keep pushing them or or pushing these mines, pushing these companies to say, well, you know, and pay pay your workers more, pay your workers fairly, that they they turn around and say, you know what, uh, it, it's just cheaper for us to use machines now, and so those workers, you know, before they had a dollar a day, now they have nothing. No, in fact, it's the other way around. It's cheaper for them to pay that person a dollar for their forty kilogram sack of cobalt. You see, there's, in a, there's immense demand, supply demand imbalances. There's not enough machinery or manpower or child power to get cobalt out of the ground quickly enough to meet current demand, let alone future demand. Especially looking a decade out um, or two decades out when the number of EVs on the road is expected to be 10 or 20 times what it is now. And each one of those battery packs requires up to 10 kilograms of refined cobalt, a thousand times more than a smartphone. Um, so every excavator, every heavy duty piece of machinery is operating full tilt in the Congo. And on top of that, you can get a few hundred thousand people handpicking cobalt, um, producing 40 kilogram sacks a day and boosting supply for uh almost de minimis expense. And then that still doesn't meet demand. So no, it, there's no there's no threat of people losing their dollar or two. The, 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 what needs to happen is uh, the, the underbelly of this scramble for cobalt needs to be formalized so that people are paid a decent wage so that they can survive and keep their children in school rather than bring them to the pit to earn that extra dollar to help the family survive. It's this race to the bottom that's destroying the people uh, and environment of the Congo, as opposed to simply adhering to the kinds of uh, conditions of work and decency and sustainability that we would expect for our people and our environment over here, but don't seem to think the people and environment of the Congo are worth it. Yeah, and so I also also want to talk a little bit about something you touched on, which is that this demand is only going to go up. Uh, you know, skyrocketing demand for EVs. The EU just announced that in in, a, in about two decades, uh, they're going to sorry, not in two decades, in a decade, they're going to ban the sale of uh, any new gas powered cars, and and they're all they're aiming to turn completely to electric vehicles by 2050. I think uh, most of the developed world seems to be moving in this direction of, of a total transition to EV and, and using these lithium ion batteries to power all of society. Um, you know, so the, the demand looks like it's it's only going to go up and exponentially at that. Um, so, what do you think the future looks like for the Congo if if you know we we don't intervene if we if we let things keep on going like we have for the past twenty to thirty years we we you know we, we don't make any kind of targeted effort. Well, this this um, these 
projections for future demand driven by um, EV mandates and and discontinuing um, the sale of um, gas-powered vehicles is, is a looming disaster on top of an existing disaster for the people of the Congo because it, sug- it suggests demand for millions upon millions uh, of increased production of tons of cobalt beyond what's already being uh, scrambled out of the ground today. Um, and so what, what, what will happen eventually is, if this is not addressed, the there will be a huge swath of the Congolese population that is left injured, contaminated, or dead, and a large patch of the country will be completely obliterated uh, and left with nothing but valueless dirt, not a tree, not a river, nothing clean, everything destroyed. And so the question is, how can the global north build a sustainable um, green future by inflicting such destruction and violence in the heart of Africa? Uh, I mean, is that even a reasonable? Um, is that even a reasonable uh, manner in which to conduct ourselves here in the global north? That we 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 want to save our environment, but it's okay to destroy the heart of Africa. We want to uh, enable our rechargeable lives, but it's okay to do it at the expense uh, uh, and enormous violent violence against the people in the heart of Africa. There's just when I said the first time I went to the Congo, I, I felt I had been transported back centuries to colonial times. That's what I'm saying. That it, it boils down to that, that somehow our economy is treating the people of Africa still today as if they're fit to be nothing more than brute laborers. Uh, and their resources are ours to pillage and use uh, for our needs without any consideration to the consequences of the people there. And, and that's, a, that's a, 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 an abiding indictment of the supposed legitimacy and um, equity of the global economy and the, and the manner in which we're bulldozing forward with these climate sustainability goals, but without turning around to make sure we're not trampling on an entire people in the process. You, you made a very interesting point there. Uh, you said the first time you went to the Congo, it felt as though you'd been transported back to colonial times. And I think just, just going back through history, if I think of, you know, what, what was Europe like at the, the turn of the Industrial Revolution? A, a lot of the stories that you say sound quite familiar, you know, uh, long days, uh, 15, 16 hour days, uh, vast amounts of child labor, zero respect for human rights or labor rights. Um, so all, all of these sort of key facets of, of what labor looks like in the Congo today were also staples of of labor, the, the labor market in at the turn of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and so what what happened? What I, I think it's important to look to history to say, what were the forces that drove change in that in that respect? And it, it wasn't the companies. It wasn't the factory owners that said, you know what, we need to start paying our workers more and we need to start paying them fairly. I think, by and large, uh, what the history books would say was there were two things that changed that. One was labor unions, guilds, uh, collective bargaining changing things. And then even more than that, the key force that changed it was uh, government, a, a state a state entity um, stepping in and saying, uh, you know what, we're going to put child labor laws on the books. Uh, we're going to put uh, worker safety protections. And over time, I, I think we had, we had this sort of transition and, and conditions got better. Um, so is is there any potential for for this, uh, you know, what we saw in in Europe and in, in vast swaths of the world around the industrialization period 
uh, to actually happen? Do we have any kind of state, uh, any any kind of strong state, any kind of law enforcement, any any apparatus in the DRC that can drive this change, or is there any potential for collective bargaining, that kind of thing? You know, I, I know it seems very far fetched to say in, in in a world like this that you know workers could collaborate and and sort of bargain collectively, but is there is there any apparatus to drive this from the ground up instead of leaving it to the companies? Uh, well, look, I, I don't think it can be left to the companies as for a start. If they were going to treat the people of Africa with dignity and respect, they'd have done it by now. Uh, and you and I wouldn't be having this conversation and I wouldn't need to write cobalt red, uh, full stop. So it can't be left to them. There will have to be some other lever or pressure. Now, this, this period during the Industrial Revolution when workers' rights were achieved uh, across the global north, um, very little changed for the people in Africa during that time, they were still being slave traded and exploited and colonized. You know, so we have to understand there are distinctive populations of people here. And the people of Africa have been slave traded uh, for three and a half centuries, followed by colonized for a century, followed by neo-colonial exploitation, pillage and plunder um, from the 1960s up till today. So for them, very little has changed um, uh, across all these centuries. So there's um, there will have to be um, a grassroots movement that clamors and agitates for change on the ground in the Congo, um, uh, both internally and externally. Um, but there will also have to be some courageous regulatory action that um, uh, compels these tech and EV companies at the top of the chain to actually address, not just say they're addressing, but actually get on the ground in the heart of Africa uh, and address the consequences of this insatiable demand for cobalt that they have initiated um, with our rechargeable economy and these enormous EV mandates leading into the future. Um, I, I don't think companies um, can be left to self-regulate. If so, they, they, would have, they would have sorted this out by now. So I think it'll be uh, from the bottom up, uh, pressure, civil society and consumers clamoring and agitating with a social movement uh, for change, followed by some top down pressure, which will have to be regulatory in nature, um, ascribing some kind of si significant deterrent level of consequence to companies that don't genuinely and on a sustained basis adhere to the basic principles of human rights and sustainability that we supposedly all agree to in the year 2023. All right. Uh, very, very tough and, and, and gut-wrenching topic. But yeah, I mean, those those are all the questions I, I have for you today. Uh, Siddharth, um, thank, you, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and telling our audience about this. Um, and yeah, feel free to plug your book and, and tell our audience where they can they can learn more. No, thank you very much for the invitation to talk about this uh, urgent matter. And any listener that would like to learn more uh, about this issue, my book is Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. And you can pick it up um, through any bookstore or online bookseller. Of course, highly recommended. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.